0: And then the way he killed them, uh, you know, tying a rope around their necks and then tying a concrete block to the end of the rope and then throwing them overboard in full view of the other, you know, doing one in full view of the other two and tossing the second overboard. And so that the third one could see what was happening, had, what had happened to her own family, the rest of her family, and knowing she was next to me. You know, just imagine the sheer terror of that, that experience.
1: That sheer terror that Tampa Bay Times columnist Craig Pittman just described was doled out by convicted killer Oba Chandler, who was executed for the murders of an Ohio woman and her two teenage daughters 29 years ago this week. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss last week's shooting death of a masked robber outside a pizza shop in Holly Hill. The robber attacked an employee with a piece of lumber as the victim was closing the shop for the night. Unexpectedly for the robber, the victim was armed with a handgun. You'll hear portions of a pair of 911 calls that were made immediately after the shooting. Later, I'll discuss the harrowing story of the deaths of Joe, Michelle, and Christy Rogers, who were spending their first ever vacation in Florida and were found dead, floating in Tampa Bay the very weekend they were expected to return home. The murders devastated the farming community in Northwest Ohio, where the family was from, and unnerved people across the Tampa region. The case went unsolved for more than three years until a handwriting sample on a scrap of paper was linked to the killer, Oba Chandler. My special guest for that segment will be author of O Florida and columnist for the Tampa Bay Times, Craig Pittman. Coming up, the story of a criminal whose decision to rob someone last week outside a pizza shop cost him his life.
2: Nine one one. Where is your emergency? I'm on one fifty eight Ridgewood. Avenue. I just shot somebody. Okay. What What's the location? One fifty eight Ridgewood. He attacked me while I was closing my store. Okay. One fifty eight Ridgewood. Yeah. Please, please hurry up. Okay.
1: Roberto Feliciano shot and killed a man in a clown mask who had attacked him with a wooden post and a pair of scissors the night of May 29th outside a Little Caesar's pizza shop on Ridgewood Avenue in Holly Hill. Feliciano was panicking moments after firing the 40 caliber weapon on his armed attacker.
2: Uh, he hit me in the face with a piece of wood. <laughs> Please help me! I think he's okay. dying. Please help. Okay, listen. They're on the way to to you. Is he breathing? Please help me, please. No, he's no me. help. He's not breathing. Okay. I don't want to get close to him. He tried to stab me with a okay. with a pair of scissors. He hit me in the face with with a big piece okay. of wood. Okay. Okay. Listen to me. The police and uh, the fire face.
1: department. Listen. Calm down. The 28-year-old Feliciano was closing the Little Caesars and had just stepped outside through the rear of the restaurant when the suspect, later identified as 53-year-old Jesse Coggins, started attacking him. Coggins' last known place of residence was Greenville, North Carolina. During the 911 call, Feliciano sounded as confused as he was traumatized. Coggins, who was wearing dark clothes and a Halloween clown mask, just sprung up on him and began beating him, striking the victim numerous times against his head and arms.
2: I'm bleeding all over the place. You are? Uh, Yeah. Okay. Did he try to rob you? I have no clue. I just stepped out the door. And he hit me in the face with a big, like, two-by-four or something.
1: Feliciano broke down into sobs during the conversation. He kept telling the operator to hurry and send someone because his attacker appeared to be near death.
2: There's a lot of people listening. There's a lot of people coming to you. Please, I heard him. I heard him. Please come help this guy, too. Please help
1: him. At one point, Feliciano told the 911 operator that he needed to call his mother, but she insisted that he stay on the phone with her until police and paramedics arrived. Coggins was shot three times at close range. The bullet struck him in the torso. Feliciano was not only injured and worried for the man he had shot, but he also worried that police would put handcuffs on him.
2: Okay, listen, you need to take a deep breath for me, okay? Ma'am, I can't. I'm going to go to jail for this. Uh, Um, you need to talk to the officers, okay? But stay on the phone with me.
1: Feliciano did not go to jail. He was not charged. Holly Hill Deputy Chief Jeff Miller told me Friday this incident was a clear-cut case of self-defense. Feliciano's story to police was backed up by the 911 call, which was backed up by the video footage of the incident, which was backed up by the evidence at the scene. Miller also told me detectives are still trying to determine Coggins' motive. One witness did tell police that Coggins had been drunk earlier that night. Coggins was pronounced dead after he was rushed to Halifax Health Medical Center in Daytona Beach. Prison records from North Carolina show that Coggins had been convicted of various felonies there, including indecent liberties with a child. He was also arrested last year on robbery and assault charges. Holly Hill Police told the News Journal that Feliciano had a concealed weapons permit. Others in the vicinity heard the shots and saw some commotion and called 911. Here is a sample of one of those calls.
2: 911, where's your Hey, I, I think Little Caesar's on Ridgewood, right there in Holly Hill, is getting robbed. I just seen somebody shoot somebody as they ran out of the store and he hit the ground. I think it was a worker, maybe. But I heard gunshots and I watched the guy also hit the ground. He's a black guy who shot, shooting him with a gun. He's right out in the parking lot. Hang on. You said the one in Holly Hill and Ridgewood? Yes, yes. Did you get a call on it yet? Yeah? Hold on. Sir, where are you? Hurry up. Somebody just watched the guy just shot on the ground like five times. Listen.
1: As Holly Hill police pulled up to the scene, Feliciano held up his hands. He was still convinced he was going to jail.
2: I got my, All right, my hands up. The police up. are there, okay? Yeah, I got my hands up. Okay. He t- I came out and he hit me in the face with that wood, and I shot him. I don't want to go to jail, man. All right. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> All right.
1: Hang up. Coming up, the story of notorious Tampa Bay killer, Oba Chandler. The bodies of Joanne, Michelle, and Christy Rogers were found floating in Tampa Bay on June 4th, 1989. Their bodies had been there for about three days. Joanne, who always went by Joe, was 36 years old. Michelle, her oldest daughter, was 17. Christy, her youngest, was 14. They left for their vacation Friday, May 26, 1989. They drove in the family's 1986 Oldsmobile, Calais. They decided to travel across the state, making stops in Jacksonville, Silver Springs, Titusville, Epcot, MGM Studios, and eventually Tampa. While in Silver Springs on Sunday, May 28th, Joe sent a postcard to her husband, Hal, in Van Wert County, Ohio. Hal was originally going to go to Florida with his family, but decided to stay behind to work on the dairy farm, which was his life. He had to tend to the cows. Michelle sent a postcard to her new boyfriend and called him on his birthday. By the time Thursday rolled around, the only place left for the girls to see before heading north was Tampa. They weren't sure whether to go to Busch Gardens or enjoy the Gulf Coast beaches. Joe was leery of that. She couldn't swim at all, and her daughters weren't strong swimmers either. They would get scared if they found themselves in deep water. At some point, though, they met a stranger who convinced them to join him on his boat. Here is Craig Pittman, who covered the case extensively for the Tampa Bay Times
0: they really wanted to come to Florida on vacation, the father couldn't leave. He couldn't leave the farm. So they, they went on their own, the mom and the two daughters. Gotcha. And they were very trusting. And you know, where, where they came from, you know, I guess they're used to trusting people. And, you know, they get down here to Florida where everybody's looking to hustle the tourists. And, uh, and they sort of met the ultimate hustler who took their lives.
1: One of the last times Joe and her daughters were seen alive was around 7 p.m. on June 4th. First, They were at a restaurant near the Days Inn where they had booked a room. A witness would later tell police they looked happy together, like a family on vacation. June 2nd rolled around, then June 3rd and June 4th. Hal Rogers was getting worried. He kept glancing at the driveway, expecting to see his wife and daughters rolling up in the Calais. On Sunday, June 4th, A boat named the Amber Waves was heading home to Tampa, from Key West. Someone on the vessel saw a body in the water. It was a female body floating face down. Her hands were tied behind her back, and her feet were bound. A yellow rope was around her neck. She was nude from the waist down. The U.S. Coast Guard was called. There would be two more macabre discoveries just like that another sailboat came upon the second body it was about two miles from the pier in st petersburg the same coast guard crew was sent out to fetch that body and while they were doing that the call about the third body was made she was floating about 200 yards east all three bodies were nude from the waist down and all of them had ropes around their necks One of them had to be cut in order for the body to be pulled out of the water. When the other two were found, rescuers realized the ropes were tied to concrete blocks. There were no identifications found on the females. Back in Ohio, Hal Rogers got his postcard. So did Michelle's boyfriend. Al examined both of them for clues. He went to the bank to get some money. He was making plans to go find his family. Authorities would have no luck finding out who the females were until a day's end maid spoke to her manager about room 251. It was Thursday, June 8th. The room had been untouched for a week. Suitcases were on the floor, but the beds had not been slept in. Tampa Police taped off room 251. They positively identified the victims through information they found inside one of the victims' purses. Hal got the call from one of the detectives. He was consumed with grief and fury. Hal's wait for justice was excruciating. He'd find himself in the spotlight where he was most uncomfortable. He'd feel pestered by police, betrayed by the media. His daughter's bedrooms would remain untouched for years. No one was around to clean the house. He needed hired hands to help him on the farm. He would eventually find himself in a very dark place, psychologically. In Tampa, investigators from various jurisdictions teamed up to solve the case. The victims were last seen in Tampa. But the bodies were found floating near St. Petersburg. The FBI got involved. So did the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, known as FDLE. The Florida Marine Patrol also offered a helping hand, and the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office would chip in too. A lot of cooks were crammed into one kitchen, but the newly formed multi jurisdictional task force had nothing to go on. There was no DNA evidence. There were no eyewitnesses. The victims had lived 1,000 miles away. Locally, people feared the worst.
0: I don't know if I can emphasize how weird and scary it was for people that uh, I think two or three years went by where there was the cops had absolutely no idea who had committed this crime so people were worried that there would be there would be more murders that this is part of some serial killing thing people were worried that of course that the killer was still out there and might still be looking for other victims and uh, you know and it got nationwide publicity it was on you know on all the uh, true crime shows where they were trying to you know America's most wanted and so forth they were trying to look for anything that would you know nail this guy
1: detectives were still stuck at the starting line one of them actually told the media quote we absolutely have nothing to go on and we're just hoping someone saw something police found the victim's Oldsmobile it was at a boat ramp along the Courtney Campbell Parkway There was not much inside the car, but detectives did find a sheet of Days End Stationery, which included written directions. They were scribbled down by Joe. In shorthand, the directions included an instruction to turn on State Road 60 and then bear right. It also included something else. The words blue with white were written on the page. Detectives wondered whether they should be looking for a blue and white boat. That was it for months. That's all investigators had. Before long, the task force was whittled down from 20 investigators to two. The first break came in the fall when an agent with FDLE sent a bulletin to the lead detective. In May, a 24-year-old Canadian woman had been raped on a boat in the water near Madeira Beach, west of St. Petersburg. The rape and the murders were less than three weeks apart investigators flew to canada to interview her after they spoke to her they strongly suspected that her rapist was the same man who killed the rogers family her attacker had a blue boat with a white interior a composite drawing was made of the suspect the woman told detectives that the man was charming and polite she met him inside a store struck up a friendly conversation and felt safe enough with him to go on his boat. She also told detectives the name the man had given her. It turned out to be a fake name. But she also recalled that the man had told her he was a contractor who specialized in aluminum work. By December 1989, the case was six months old and a new homicide detective wanted to take a crack at it. He wasn't a rookie cop. He was a sergeant who had done vice work, but now he was trying his hand at major crimes. His name was Glenn Moore. He had a reputation of never giving up on the case. He was as stubborn and determined as he was religious, and he was deeply religious. Moore had to take over the case at a time when St. Petersburg had recorded 45 other murders in all of 1989, which was the highest total in the history of that city. Oftentimes, seasoned detectives would stick to what they knew, because whatever they relied upon seemed to work. It seemed, though, in this case, one that was unique to any other, that a detective with no experience working homicides might have been the right one for the job. Moore assembled a new task force. Some of them interviewed the original detectives and discovered certain things that should have been followed up on had been overlooked. Moore also got a sense from some people that this was an unsolvable case. But he refused to think that way. Moore borrowed an organization system that was started in the United Kingdom. He even flew there to be trained on it. Every single tip, significant or otherwise, would be logged in a database. Keep in mind, this was before the Internet was a household tool. Google Docs and Google Sheets had not been invented, so this sort of logging system was state-of-the-art moore also decided it was time to retrace the steps made by the original investigators that meant interviewing the same people and that included hal rogers three investigators from the new task force traveled to ohio to speak to hal it was in january 1991 19 months after the killings They spent a total of 10 days in Northwest Ohio. They interviewed more than 70 people. They met Hal at his home. Investigators could not believe how messy his house looked. So much information, new to them, was uncovered by the detectives during their stay, and so much of it was tragic. But none of it turned out to be relevant to the investigation. For starters, Hal demonstrated bizarre behavior. People were uncomfortable when they were around him. Part of that was because they pitied him so much, but also because they couldn't understand him. He went numb after the murders, so much so that he never seemed to show any emotion. Part of that may have been because he was very private, and whenever he went out, he hid his eyes behind tinted glasses. Even after the funeral, Hal just came home, took off his suit put on his overalls, and went to work on his farm. That farm was all he had. His family had been wiped out. He had no relationship with his mother. He had no relationship with his brother. And there was a reason for that, a big reason. Hal's brother, John Rogers, was in prison for rape, serving seven to 25 years. His roommate was a woman he had previously dated. She accused John of raping her, and during a search warrant, investigators uncovered some startling evidence. John had also raped his teenage niece, Hal's oldest daughter, Michelle. Hal's mother alleged that her granddaughter had lied about the rape, even though photographic evidence was found that clearly showed John had done so. Hal never forgave his mother for that. He sat next to her during the funeral for his wife and daughters and never looked at her. He admitted to a reporter in one rare interview that it took all the restraint he could muster not to strike her. He also had no relationship with his brother, who was serving his time at a facility in nearby Lima. John was never convicted of raping Michelle. Authorities and family members alike did not want her to go through the trauma of testifying, so prosecutors agreed to only pin the other rape on John. The detectives working the St. Petersburg murders interviewed John in prison, and they quickly eliminated the possibility that he had anything to do with the killings. They interviewed other inmates to see whether John could have hired someone on the outside to commit the murders, but it was clear that John was a recluse and never could have coaxed anyone to carry out such a thing for him. The investigators even asked Hal, point-blank, whether he had anything to do with the murders of Joe, Michelle, and Christy. Hal didn't even get angry. He didn't get defensive, but he did give investigators a resounding no. They left Ohio with no new leads, but they were satisfied that nobody known to the Rogers family could have committed the murders. It had to have been a Tampa-area man. It had to have been a random killing. Word got out to the media in Florida that investigators traveled to Ohio and spoke to more than 70 people. That wasn't good for Hal, who never fully forgave or trusted the media after one particular reporter paid him a visit. Here again is Craig Pittman.
0: He was very wary of the press because he got burned pretty badly initially. The uh, reporters for another publication had initially done some stories very strongly suggesting that he was, he was the killer.
1: The story was published in the now-defunct Tampa Tribune, the rival paper of the Tampa Bay Times, which back then was known as the St. Petersburg Times. The Tampa Tribune reporter, who traveled to Ohio to report on the investigator's visit with Hal, was Tim Colley, an award-winning foreign correspondent who wrote several stories during his career for the Tribune and the South Florida Sun-Sentinel, many of which elicited much acclaim. Colley is now the managing editor at Newsmax. Kali's story that was published in the Tampa Tribune on April 26, 1991, is probably one that he doesn't rank among his best. It very much read like a hit piece. The story was long, it was spread across pages one, two, three, and four. In all my years of journalism, I am not sure I've ever seen a story jump three times. The jump head that appeared on page four read, quote, Victim's father, husband, described as having a violent temper. The story depicted Hal as a man who the town folk considered strange, temperamental, and perverse. One of Michelle's friends who was interviewed in the piece accused Hal of hitting on her after she turned 18. The story delved into the rape allegations leveled against Hal's brother, John. The story claimed that neither Joe nor Hal believed their daughter's account. It also went on to say that Hal was the one who bailed out his brother from jail following his arrest, even after he was told by detectives that John had raped his daughter. That was partially true. Hal had promised John he would bail him out after he spoke to him, presumably during one of John's phone calls from jail. It was some time afterward that detectives told Hal about John raping Michelle. Hal was disgusted, but also a man of his word. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. He paid for his brother's bail, but still disowned him. That piece of information did not come out of Kali's article in the Tribune. It came from a seven-part series published in the St. Petersburg Times by then-reporter Thomas French, who was now a journalism professor at the University of Indiana. French's series earned a Pulitzer Prize for feature writing. My efforts to reach French were unsuccessful, but much of the content of this podcast comes from those seven articles, written 20 years ago by French. It was a masterful series. The one reporter, who Hal did trust, was French. He opened up to him. One night, Hal got in his pickup and drove to the gravesites of his mother and two daughters. He brought with him two digging tools. Part of him never believed that his family was dead. When the bodies were sent to Ohio, they remained in body bags. They were put in caskets that remained closed. And on this particular night, Hal was determined to dig up the bodies and see for himself whether his family really was underground. He pulled himself out of his temporary state of insanity. He told French that he realized in that moment that if someone found him digging in the dirt, and trying to open those coffins, he would surely be taken away to a mental hospital. He was lucid again, at least enough to get back in his truck and drive back home. Another night, Hal got on his motorcycle and started heading down the highway. He accelerated to 100 miles per hour and let go of the handlebars. He surrendered to God. The bike slowed down almost to a stop and Hal was still upright, sitting on the bike. To Hal, that meant God didn't want him to rejoin his wife and daughters. Not yet. Life from that point on would still not be easy for Hal, but pretty soon the detectives down south would find the killer. Solace was coming. A brochure had been discovered inside the car when it was checked for clues by the original forensics team. It had fingerprints on it that didn't belong to the victims. The original detectives, who had followed up on more than 1,000 leads and had collected dozens of pieces of evidence, neglected to process this particular piece of evidence. On the back of it included handwriting that also did not come from Joe or the girls. The words, Courtney Campbell Causeway, were written on the brochure. That was the place where the Oldsmobile had been found. Additionally, the words, Route 60, Days Inn, also were jotted down. Route was written in shorthand, using the letters RT. The handwriting was distinctive. Sergeant Moore wanted the public to see it. After reading the article in the Tampa Tribune, he also wanted the public to stop thinking that maybe Hal Rogers or his brother was the killer, or anyone else in Ohio was the killer. Tampa area residents needed to know that the killer was likely living among them. The decision was made to rent some billboard space. A number of billboards with the question, who killed the Rogers family? was seen all over the city, along with a hotline number and an announcement that a $25,000 reward was available to anyone who provided information leading to an arrest. At one point, a Pinellas County Commissioner suggested to the task force that the handwriting sample should go on the billboards. It had already been published in the local papers. Moore agreed with the Commissioner, So the handwriting sample plastered on those billboards was seen by more sets of eyes. A press conference was held, too. Sergeant Moore had become well-versed on how to get the media interested in an open investigation. Don't give them everything at once, but be sure to give them something new each time. There was one Tampa resident who was particularly interested in the case. She even kept the composite drawing of the suspect under a magnet on her refrigerator door. She suspected the man who killed the Rogers family was her neighbor on Dalton Street. He once had a boat. It was blue with white interior. His property was located along a canal, which provided him direct access to the boat ramp where the victims were thought to have been picked up by the killer. The woman, Joanne Steffi, didn't want her name to get out for fear that she could be wrong. And also because she didn't want her neighbor, who gave her the creeps, to find out she had reported him to the police. Steffi told a deputy she knew, and he promised her that he would take it to the detectives, but her tip never actually reached the detectives. After the handwriting samples were published in the newspaper, Steffi spoke to another neighbor about her suspicions. That neighbor, Moselle Smith, had actually hired the creepy neighbor to do some aluminum work on a piece of property she owned and rented out. Smith remembered that the creepy neighbor had filled out a contract for her and signed it. She went rummaging for it. Steffi decided to call in her tip this time, and she spoke to a female investigator. She faxed along a copy of the contract. The tip wound up in a stack of other tips, and the others were higher on the priority list. By the time the billboards were posted, Steffi was beside herself. She and Smith both pestered investigators until finally they gave them their full attention. The fax copy they had sent was too fuzzy, so detectives drove to Smith's house and got their hands on the original contract. They noticed the match. The scrap of paper found inside the Oldsmobile is what ultimately led them to their first viable suspect. That suspect's name was Oba Chandler. Many books have been written about this case. True crime specials have aired segments about it, from Unsolved Mysteries from the time it was still unsolved to The Scene of the Crime, a series that aired on the Discovery Channel. Part of the folklore of this case is that the police's billboards are what cracked it. That's not true. Here again is Craig Pittman.
0: Well, the, the, there's a myth about this case that the billboard solved the case, and that's not true. Joey and Steffi had already sent in the thing to the police saying, hey, Oba Chandler's your guy the handwriting matches and then the police had not seen her tip because they were just deluged with tips and so when they put the billboards up then she and another neighbor both went to the cops and said look you you don't need these billboards you've already got the guy here's the guy look at the handwriting look what we already sent you and match him up and so the police did and then at that point they realized yeah this is the guy
1: When police tracked down Oba Chandler, they discovered he no longer owned the boat. He got rid of it not long after the murders. Not long after the Unsolved Mysteries episode aired, he moved out of the neighborhood without warning. He and his wife and daughter eventually settled in Port Orange, a city in Volusia County just south of Daytona investigators were piecing together their case. They tracked down the boat that Chandler owned, as well as the Jeep Cherokee he owned when he committed the murders. Detectives got the description of that vehicle from the rape victim. An administrative assistant for the task force also noticed something. Chandler had an uncanny resemblance to the composite drawing that was made after the rape victim was interviewed detectives were floored. And there was another coincidence. Chandler was a contractor who specialized in aluminum, something the rape victim also disclosed to police. Investigators flew back to Canada to interview the woman. She positively identified Chandler in a photo lineup. Seeing the man's face shook her, too. She politely asked the detective to flip it over. She couldn't bear to keep looking at Chandler's scowling face for too long. An assistant state attorney also interviewed her. He realized he had a very strong and reliable witness. The plan was to arrest Chandler for the rape and continue to stack more evidence against him for the triple murder and present their findings to the grand jury for an indictment. Handwriting experts confirmed a match. A palm print on the brochure also matched Chandler. Everything was coming together. Authorities learned that Chandler was a career criminal who served stints in prison for various convictions, including armed burglary and counterfeiting. In one case, he and another suspect entered a house and tied up a husband and wife. At gunpoint, Chandler made the wife strip down to her underwear, and then he rubbed the barrel of his revolver against her stomach. Chandler was troubled his whole life. His father hanged himself in the basement of his apartment building when Chandler was 10 years old. The kid was stealing cars by the time he was 14 and had been arrested 20 times before he even turned 18. He fathered eight kids with seven different women. Most of them wanted nothing to do with him. Authorities were ready to arrest him on September 17th, 1992, but before they could swoop in, Chandler walked out of his Port Orange home, got into his car, and left. He was going out of town. Law enforcement tailed him until he got to Lake City. It appeared he was heading for Georgia, so they realized they needed to act fast. He pulled into a convenience store, but by then a severe thunderstorm had rolled through, and the aircraft that was tracking him lost sight of him. The ground surveillance also lost sight of him, and just like that, Chandler was gone. Detectives were seething, and they feared he might kill again. A week went by before he turned up again, and this time, Authorities arrested him at a gas station near his home. In November, he was indicted on three counts of first-degree murder. He faced the death penalty if convicted. More evidence came to light during the pre-trial phase. Chandler had made several collect calls to his home while out on the boat right after he had raped the Canadian woman, and again right after he had killed Joe, Michelle, and Christy Rogers. During at least one of those calls, the caller identified himself to the operator as Oba. Pittman covered the trial, which was held in the fall of 1994. The jurors were selected in Orlando and bused to Pinellas County, where they were sequestered for the duration of the trial which lasted for weeks. The prosecution was led by a highly respected assistant state attorney with the Sixth Judicial Circuit.
0: The prosecutor on the case, a guy named Doug Crow, had actually been at the the pier when the bodies were brought in of the three women who had been killed. And he had this real strong personal commitment to seeing the case through all the way.
1: The case was gut-wrenching for the jurors especially after they heard the testimony from the Canadian woman. Her memory of her ordeal was very clear. She teared up, but she didn't break down. She told jurors that she was vacationing in Madeira Beach with a friend. Chandler tried to lure both women onto his boat She agreed to go with him, but her friend didn't. She described how frustrated Chandler looked when he tried and failed to convince both women to go with him. By the time the sun had set, the woman, who had brought her camera with her and had photographed Chandler, told him she should head back to shore and rejoin her friend. Chandler moved in to give her a hug. She resisted his advances. Then he got more aggressive. She began to scream. He told her she was wasting her time. No one was around. No one would hear her. Then he asked her whether refusing to have sex with him was worth dying for. He raped her. He brought her back to shallow water and she waded her way back to shore. Chandler also pulled the film out of the woman's camera and threw it into the water. After the Canadian woman got off the stand and after the judge called a recess, several jurors retreated to the jury room and sobbed. From that point forward, it appeared a conviction was imminent. It was. Chandler also was caught in a series of lies. When he took the stand in his own defense, he said he never had the Rogers family on his boat. He had only encountered them on land when they asked him for directions when Crow asked him why he stayed on the water overnight. He said he had a leak in his fuel line and was out of fuel. He finally duct taped the hole in the hose and was towed by the Coast Guard to a marina where he filled up his tank and headed home. That was his story. Crow pummeled him during cross-examination, pointing out that such a fuel leak could never happen on that model boat and for good measure, he called a mechanic to the stand after Chandler's testimony, and he said the duct tape could never be used to cover a hole in a fuel line because gasoline eats through the tape, making an airtight fasten impossible. A jail inmate who also testified at trial said that Chandler told him that he had intended to kill the Canadian woman, but realized that her friend had seen him. ...and could positively identify him. So he let her go. One of the last witnesses called to the stand was another jail inmate. He was a rebuttal witness who followed Chandler's testimony. And this witness said Chandler had told him that his biggest mistake... ...was leaving the note inside the Oldsmobile. Five minutes after jurors entered the deliberation room... ...the 12 of them took a vote. It was unanimous guilty, they still decided to go over some of the details of the case, like good jurors do. They knocked on the door after 90 minutes. They had reached a verdict. They also recommended death for Chandler by a unanimous vote. While on death row, Chandler agreed to an interview with Craig Pittman. And here is Pittman describing to me what Chandler had told him during the interview.
0: He admitted giving them the directions, but he said it was directions for something else. And he, uh, you know, he said that's the last time I saw them. And it was kind of interesting. He never referred to them by their names or said the women or anything. He just called them these people, these people. Um, not I asked him what uh, what his last words were going to be, and he said, "Kiss my rosy red ass," which uh, did not turn out to be his
1: last words. <laughs> In 2011, Chandler was executed in Rayford. He maintained his innocence to the end. There were 21 witnesses to Chandler's execution. Hal Rogers was one of them. He declined to speak to the media. The most sickening part of Chandler's triple murder is something I'm reluctant to point out, but it's obvious to anyone who knows the details of what happened on that boat 29 years ago. Authorities said Chandler likely raped the females before he killed them, based on the fact that they were stripped naked from the waist down. Also, he didn't cover their eyes. He tied a rope around their necks, and on the end of each rope was a concrete block. He dumped one into the water, and then another, and then another. In French's Pulitzer award-winning piece, he included a postscript. In it, He wrote, quote, He, Oba Chandler, took the love that Joe and the girls felt for one another and used it to hurt them, forcing them to watch one another's suffering. Investigators have their suspicions that Chandler could be responsible for one or more unsolved murders in other parts of Florida.
0: They felt like this was was not something that he would have done one time. And in fact, they had a, uh, they actually, while they were trying to figure it out, they got an FBI profiler to come in. And the profiler, although the profiler got a lot of stuff wrong, one of the things that the police very firmly believed was true was that whoever had done this had done it before and would try to do it again. And so they looked for a lot of other cases, they looked at a lot of other cases that they thought might be similar in which he might be implicated but they were never able to nail that down now the, this new one it's, it's sort of in that same category of we think maybe he did it but they don't really have any sort of ironclad proof and of course they can't ask him about it now and even if he did he'd probably lie
1: In February 2014, police in South Florida announced Chandler had been linked by his DNA to the slaying of 20-year-old Evelise Berrios of Davie, who was abducted in November 1990. Her body was found hours later in Coral Springs. It was learned that Chandler lived less than two miles from where the victim was kidnapped, at the Sunrise Mall in Broward County. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I will discuss another murder case that was profiled on the old NBC program, Unsolved Mysteries. In that case, the suspect saw the episode while hiding in Hawaii and decided on his own to turn himself in. He had murdered his wife and two children in Okaloosa County, Florida. Among my special guests next week will be the prosecutor who won the conviction against the killer join us then
0: you can find tony on twitter at tony crime writer or email him at tony.holt at news jrnl.com be sure to rate us on itunes sun crime state is recorded by tony holt and produced by chris bridges for the daytona beach news journal